Hello, this is Tim. Before we get rolling on this episode, I have a quick announcement for you all, especially our listeners in the Los Angeles area. On February 29th, yes, Leap Day, Tonebenders is hosting another sound design meetup at the Thirsty Merchant in Studio City. This is the same place as we did it last year, and we are not changing it at all because last year was such a massive success. If you came out last time, you will recall how amazing it was, and if you missed it last year, this is your chance to come out and make it even better. February 29th, 7 p.m. at the Thirsty Merchant. Head to tonebenderspodcast.com for full details. Okay, now let's hit our talk with the Maestro Sound Team. Hello and welcome to Tonebenders, where we talk with the sonic artists behind our favorite films, series, and games. My name is Tim Muirhead, and I will be your host as we talk about the incredible film Maestro. This interview was conducted before the Oscar nominations were announced, so during this talk, none of these guests knew they were all going to be Oscar nominees in a few days. So congrats to each of them. The nomination is very well deserved, as you're about to hear. I just wanted to mention that in case you were wondering why I'm not congratulating them. The film opens with a quote on screen from the picture's main character, Leonard Bernstein, that reads, A work of art does not answer questions, it provokes them. Well, after watching Maestro, I have been provoked. I have lots of questions for the sound team today, so let's meet them. First up, we have the film's music supervisor, Jason Reuter. This is a special treat since we don't normally have a chance to talk to the music side of things on this show. Jason, it's great to meet you. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Next up, we have the production sound mixer, Stephen Morrow. Stephen is someone I've been trying to get on Tonebenders for years, but it has never lined up. So I'm really happy to speaking with you today, Stephen. It's nice to meet you. Yeah, it's nice to meet you too. Thanks for having me. Next up, we have the re-recording mixers, Tom Ozanich and Dean Zupanik, both of which were on Tonebenders back in 2019 to talk about their work on Joker, which is a great episode. Look it up if you haven't heard it. Uh, it's great to have you both back. Tom, you were on the faders for dialogue and music, is that correct? That's correct. So that means, Dean, you were on the other end of the board working sound effects and Foley? Correct. Listeners, if you haven't seen Maestro yet, please go out of your way to watch it, and please do it in a quiet environment so you can hear all the detailed work that has gone into it. The film follows the life of Leonard Bernstein from his mid-twenties through to his old age, and we see his highest of highs, and we wallow with him in his lowest of lows. We see how those swings affect the people around him, especially those closest to him. The film feels different than other contemporary films. It feels infused with energy from a time gone by, both in its actual content and in the way the content is presented. There are long shots where we are forced to sit with these characters and really ponder what they're going through in near silence. And as everyone listening to this knows, silence is way harder to do than any crashing action sequence. But there is also the other end of the spectrum where there are intense loud orchestra and music sequences that are going to be remembered forever. So let's start with one of those orchestra performances at the church with the London Symphony Orchestra. This is a six minute plus scene. It appears to be shot in almost an entirely single shot. And the orchestra is actually playing live instead of to a pre-record. It is like nothing I've ever seen on screen before.
I would like to dig into this scene from start to finish. We'll get to the mix stage with Tom and Dean in a second, but Stephen and Jason, I've read that you knew this scene was coming for years and years. Uh, can you take me through how you prepped and planned for this epic performance? Maybe, Stephen, do you want to take that first? Yeah, I mean, um, from the the success that Bradley had on A Star is Born with the live vocals, I think he started talking about Maestro right after, you know, or, or during the mix, uh, the, the post-mix on it. And he basically said, look, I want to do Maestro. I want to do a, a story about Leonard Bernstein, but I don't want it to sound like pre-records. Let's just do it live like we did on uh, Stars Born. And so that's when the panic set in and it was like, well, how many years do we have to prep for this thing? You know? <laughs> So that was, uh, you know, that was kind of, uh, what, 2019, 2018, somewhere in there. And uh, that's when we started thinking about, you know, Jason and I have worked together, you know, on, on other films. And that's when we started thinking about, well, how are we going to do it? And what's the music and how much of it's going to be live? How much is it not going to be live? And then it was also a situation where you had to convince the studio who's going to fund it to do it live. Because it's not cheap to record an orchestra time after time after time. Studios don't do that. They don't do live orchestras. They they do them on dub stages and and they, they you know they record them in a nice controlled environment, not in a six hundred year old cathedral. So convincing them that this was something that was possible that was not going to be a waste of their money and time. You mentioned convincing them. Did you have to convince yourself? It's not really convincing yourself because when Bradley says, "Here's what I'd like to do," you know the job isn't to try to convince him otherwise. It's to go, okay, that's what he wants to do. So let's figure out how to do that. There's always, you know, when you're trying something new, there's always like, are we going to be able to do this? Uh, All right, let's figure out, you know, but I think it it quickly goes to let's figure out how how we're going to do it, not if we can do it, you know. Jason, as music supervisor, what was going through your head when this idea was first presented to you? It was incredibly exciting. I I knew it was a big risk for everyone involved, more financially, because it's just not very textbook. But you know, Steve and I knew it could be done. I think there's a lot of things that are just a bit outside the box for workflow because it's basically scoring on set while you're filming, which is it's kind of you're just you're just taking on a lot of things at once. So you're not in a controlled scoring stage. You you know, obviously, you know, sound it's it's hard to like consider music and sound a priority on set when you have, you know, camera and all the other things that are that are happening so we knew it was a lot to take on we knew it was a lot of setting expectations kind of what we needed and making sure Bradley was sort of aware kind of how much focus it took to get a good recording I think the other unique thing about it was conceptually about the movie it's not like a musical biopic where it's fast cutting performance stuff where you're cutting to players. I mean, it's, it's, it's a love story and it's a relationship story. And it's, I, I think we wanted the Lenny's music to be a character in the movie. So it's like, how do we create this sort of immersive storytelling through sound and music where it's more from Lenny's perspective. Like if you were standing there on the podium at Ely that day was, was kind of the soundscape we were going for. So Jason, you were there on set as well, right? Correct. Yeah. So how many mics did you throw up, Stephen? We had contacted um, a company, I think, Jason, you talked to them first, the um, Classic Sound. It was unique because we, we didn't need to just, like, stripe every section. You know, we, we really wanted to pull it off in the room, so we knew there would be bleed everywhere. And and once we had enlisted the LSO, I think it was organic to lean into how they usually record in the classical world. So there's a company named Classic Sound that is housed at the Barbican with the LSO. So they're used to the repertoire. They're used to the miking sort of, you know, they're, they're able to sort of come in and assist. 
sort of from that world, which is interesting because, you know, they use a platform, they use Pyramix, not Pro Tools. So there's all sorts of things that are sort of outside of our world. But we, Steve and I both thought, it's like, let's bring it to Maestro, you know, to really lean into it as far as we can. Yeah. And then, and then you know, they would say, here's our, here's our general setup. And we go, okay, well, now we're doing... You know, we're going to add a little bit more for the the purpose of Dolby Atmos and just for the purposes of not having it sound like the record that they're used to doing. I think there was 60 plus microphones going for that, you know, record. But besides the track count, it was more or less just the placement and and knowing what you wanted to achieve, knowing that you wanted to put the, the audience who's going to watch the film on the stand with Lenny. That's how you want to experience that moment. So you've got 60 tracks of mics. How many actually showed up to the mix stage? Uh, Tom, do you want to take that? Well, that kind of goes through, you know, an interim stage where our scoring mixer would take that and balance that and kind of place that and give me basically a whole bunch of 5-1 stems. So I think I had 20-ish or so 5-1 stems from that, obviously broken into all the the groupings of, you know, the strings and the brass and the choir and soloists and all that. And, you know, I think one of the crazy things about this was just the guts it took to do this as this sort of one big take, one, you know, and there are a couple of other shots in there, but, you know, when Bradley kind of decided to do that as one big, bold take, there was a lot on the line, you know, a lot of, uh, <laughs> a, a lot could, could go wrong with that. And it's kind of uh, magic, really, in a way that it, it happened. And that's, those are the kinds of things you you want to somehow find, whether you're making a movie or you're recording an album, you know, everybody's looking for those, like, magic things that happen that that you couldn't really almost plan for. You know, you do all the planning and then you hope for the magic. Um, and, and obviously, I think he got it. It's gone through these guys plus the scoring mixer and everybody before it gets to me. And then I've got to take all that and, you know, kind of imagine it um, like, what can we do in this theatrical space to put us in? The cathedral. It's driven largely. I mean, there's a, a big part of it is is the shots and you know what's happening visually and the geography of that. But but overall, it's really driven by the emotion of where we've come in the movie to that point, and and knowing like this is a huge climax scene. For the movie, I mean, it's not just about the performance. It's it's like Jason was saying, it's about their relationship and, you know, the meaning of this to their relationship. And, you know, this is a big turning point that puts them back together. So there's a lot going on, you know, and it plays out with us connecting with Lenny as he's doing this heartfelt performance and so that was all of that weighs into how do you play this, you know, trying to push the drama, you know, pull back some things that, you know, are going to allow us to, you know, not just be sort of overwhelmed and overpowered by this giant piece of music that goes for, like you said, six minutes or whatever. You know, we want to have the delicacy, you know, of 
where it starts and, you know, there's a few moments in it where it settles down a little bit and builds back up. And we want to also get to these giant epic peaks in there as well. To me, it's like I'm driving that with a thinking always about the emotion. And, and so consequently, there's certain things where it's like, okay, I want a little more low end here. I want the swell to just wash over us and be overwhelming. And There's one point where the kettle drums kick in and it just kind of shakes the whole room and it's a really magical moment. Yeah. I mean, that's exactly one of those points I'm saying is like, you has to do this. It has to be this epic thing. I mean, pushing the, the boundaries of, you know, sort of what we've heard before and being immersed in that. Dean, did you have something you wanted to add to that? Whenever we talk about the Ely scene... Ely is the name of the church the scene takes place in. It sounds awesome, obviously. It's just, it's beautiful. But not only does Tom have these five one stems, but he had to split those stems off to get them into Atmos, which we never really talk about. The choices he made on what was going into the Atmos plays a huge part of how we feel listening to this piece. So how did you make those choices, Tom? Put them on the spot. Didn't you? <laughs> I think a lot of times when I'm making those choices, I mean, I think there are some sort of basic philosophic things I have about those choices I make in general. I, you know, I want it to feel connected to the screen and what we're looking at. Um, but at the same time, I want to create a, a three-dimensional space that extends the screen out to wrap around us. You know, I don't want to be stuck with it being on the screen, but I do want it to be anchored. You know, I want it to be there. I want it to feel like that is tangibly what we're looking at and playing with those elements. You know, again, some of that is motivated by the, the geography of what's happening. You know, the choir is back behind us on the right, or now we've turned and we're looking right at them. As the camera moves, all that stuff is subtly shifting so that it feels like it's it's in the geography appropriate to the picture. And yet at the same time, you can't get too heavy handed with that or you're going to imbalance the the mix. You know, it's going to be like, oh, well, everybody's over there in the back corner. Well, that's not going to sound good. But you ought to sell that feeling still. That's the trick is kind of figuring out the placement and the balance to make a still in the middle of it and yet feel like the parts are coming from where the parts are in general. A movie that just came out recently is called The Iron Claw. It, it has nothing to do with Maestro, except that there are, crowds are featured in both these films. We talked to the sound team of The Iron Claw, and they talked about how they built the crowds. The crowds in this film are different. Those were wrestling crowds screaming and boisterous. There's a scene right off, well, not right off the top, but a couple minutes in, where Leonard is being introduced to a crowd that is not expecting him. They're expecting someone else. Bruno Walter, who was to have conducted this afternoon, is ill. And his place will be taken by the young American-born assistant conductor of the Philharmonic Symphony, Leonard Bernstein. And the crowd has to be polite, but not enthusiastic. <laughs> Dean, do you want to tell us about how you kind of build the crowd layers, uh, both in this scene and maybe throughout the film? Yeah, Richard King, the sound supervisor, 
obviously how to find and and or record fresh crowds to mimic what we're seeing. And you're absolutely right. Those crowds that was a that was a big deal on the mix stage. They couldn't be enthusiastic. They had to just kind of be polite. When Leonard wows them, then the crowd gets enthusiastic. But also, it was very important that those crowds had to stay within the time period and also stay within the venue of those crowds. That was a classical music crowd. They, you know, they don't do big woo-hoo whistling and all that for the first few performances. So uh, the choices Richard made and the editor's cut gave me the material to play it realistically. And I thought they worked really well. It plays so authentically that, you know, when you're in a theater with people, and this is true of the crowds I think Dean was able to accomplish with with the detail and the placement of that. And we've had several people comment to us that they're thrown because they can't tell if that's part of the movie or the people in the theater they're in, you know, starting to react to those things just because it feels so accurate and so real. We had a comment from somebody who said that they thought the people sitting next to them were the people clapping and (laughs) part of the audience within the theater watching, which... He, then he realized it wasn't, that it was how we placed him and where we placed him in the Atmos format. And well, that's a win right there. You can't you can't get a better compliment than that. That was a great compliment. And uh, when you're on the mixing stage, you kind of, we're in our own little world and we think we know what, we think we know what it sounds like and how, how good things are going to be. But when you get into the real world and they get comments like that, it's pretty satisfying. In the intro, I mentioned that there's lots of quiet moments in this film as well. One scene that really kind of knocked me out was the scene where they go to a small theater after they meet at a party. A gift for me, my liege. Oh, that's very good. Is there name? Oh, uh, uh, with your little spots of wax white, Rose, you look like the extravagantly hands of the flower. No, 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 the, uh, <laughs> You look like the eye of a broken moon. Oh, you're terrible. What's your line? You're always changing, my love. I didn't see you yesterday, but I looked at your horse. It's so beautiful. But not as beautiful as you are. Because you are a dragon. Their dialogue is just hanging out, and we kind of watch them fall in love with each other while they're rehearsing this uh, play that she's working on. And the sound for it, there's nowhere to hide anything. Like, it's an empty room. Do you want to talk about tackling the dialogue on that, Tom? Uh, we'll get to you about music stuff in a second, Jason. Uh, Stephen may be capturing that as well. How, how did that scene come together? I appreciate your recognizing that. <laughs> um, it's one of my favorite scenes. I mean, it's hard to pick a favorite scene. There's so many in this, but but I love that scene. I think you know, part of that is just because I I love them in it and and their relationship really sort of falling for each other in there and and the acting what they're doing is just over. I mean, amazing. And what I'm always trying to do is try to find all the little nuances that the actors are doing and try to, you know, bring them out 
put them in the right perspective, make sure they're they're readable and they're there, they're not overemphasized or something. Um, I feel that that stuff really draws us closer to them, you know, and we can get that level of detail and richness. We feel, you know, actually closer to the performance and and that just sucks us in that much more to the characters. You know, it was tricky uh, because, you know, he shot on film and so they're film cameras and that's black and white. It was, they're noisy cameras. And even though they're in this, you know, theoretically isolated space, you know, the world is a noisy place. <laughs> and so trying to kind of wrestle that down to being a truly actually quiet thing in the movie is much harder than somebody who doesn't do this might might realize. Steven, do you want to talk about capturing that scene, what it was like on set? In this scenario, you know, you have New York City outside. You have the dolly, you know, creaking along the floor of the stage, you know, and you have a bare light bulb in the middle of the set that's just kind of humming, you know, because it's dimmed. So it's, it's, it is quite the, the trick that you guys pulled off to make it as quiet as it is because it's not... It wasn't crazy loud, but it wasn't that quiet, you know. It was quite the, the feat to, to watch it in the theater and just see how quiet it was between these two people. So the dialogue, you know, you're trying to wrestle that. You're trying to make, you know, get rid of all this extra noise. But, but the most important thing is actually their dialogue, right? And so that's still got to be rich, you know, voices and stuff. But then there's all this other stuff, even though in theory we were kind of like not hearing the other, the rest of the world, there's still a lot we're hearing. We're hearing the reverb of the, of the space, all the foley of their movements, you know, some of the room tone, the, the light that is there and buzzing, but is now effects. So it's now controllable. All of those things and be able to hear the those little details are the things that tell you how isolated this space is, right? Because you're hearing into the crevices, which normally you can't hear that stuff, right? There's too much noise in the world, and you don't notice those things because, you know, it's just too too low. I'm always pointing out that, you know, the making the dialogue really good has a lot to do with the work Dean's doing with the foley and the backgrounds and getting all that stuff to wrap around it just right. I mean, realistically, you know, honestly, we don't get rid of all of the noise out of the production. That's not really necessarily possible or good to do. But getting that other stuff to sit in there at just the perfect spot that you're unaware of that, that's the secret sauce. Steve, I had a question real quick for you. Yeah. You had mentioned before in a a few interviews with us that Talking about Ely, you, you had some sleepless nights about how you guys were going to pull that off. I have to say, if I were a production mixer, I, I probably'd have sleepless nights with all the bare dialogue I had to record because there's a lot of intimate scenes in this movie. Yeah, no, there's there's quite a few scenes that are the scene where they're uh, you know talking about Leonard Burns. You know, Burns is the better last name, and then she whispers to him, "I want to see." all the things you want to hide, you know, and he goes, oh, we can't leave right now. And it's just this whisper moment. You do? Yes. <laughs> we can't just leave. Oh, yes, we can. 
I, I remember how loud that whole world is because we had to crank up the game just to hear them a little bit and to get it there. And it's like, I also do know you guys and we've worked together before and I knew that like it's the, the tracks are in good hands. So there are moments where I get to just go, okay, they'll fix that part. That'll be fine <laughs> you know, because it is like, there's no other option. It's not like you walk in and say, Hey, uh, speak up, you know, the, the freeway is uh, three miles away and we can kind of hear that when you're whispering because we're cranking up your, your dialogue. So it's, no, there, there are moments where you um, leave set and you're totally thrilled and there are moments where you go, all right, well, uh, you know, we have it. It's just going to take quite a bit of magic and, and, you know, in that mix stage to, to, to fix it up, which is also, you know, comforting, but, you know, you're not trying to give them extra work, but there's only so much you can do. And the gymnastics that these guys pull using the the radio mics, because a lot of the movie is radio mics. And for example, when they're in that um, theater, you know, and she, she leans into him really close uh, and says something like, you know, you can, you, you can break me with your, your two hands. You know, that's, that's her mouth is way closer to his mic than her mic. And in those moments, you know, that's when you're like, okay, his mic sounds way better. So they'll go to that mic and, you know, they'll pick and choose which one's better, but it's also, you know, it's not, that's not easy to to sit there and pour over and figure out, you know, which, which version of the microphone is the best version. That scene also has a great kind of culmination because we're leaning in to see this really intimate moment. I believe you could break me in two with your arms. As weak as I am. Like a frost. Burned in the sun. And then all of a sudden the lights kick on with this big loud smash. The moment is kind of broken and they have to kind of find it again. That, that's a great sound and picture moment, I guess, too, with the lights coming on. I, I fell in love with watching them fall in love in that scene. It was pretty cool. Jason, do you want to talk about the, uh, like, there's no composer for this film. Well, I guess it's about the composer of this film. You didn't use any uh, new composed pieces. It was all former pieces that, you know, people know. So cutting it up must be a tricky thing to take on. I have to say, honestly, that's one of the the most unique components of this sound mix. There was no composer. So I think we all knew as a team that, you know, you have a very emotional movie and there's no original score to lean on and you don't have that entity coming in, you know, writing for that moment. You know, it's interesting. Like we talk about the, the scene in the theater, which, you know, obviously in a love story, that would be like something a composer would just, this is the kickoff of the love theme. It's a big score. They got a 90-piece orchestra or whatever to hide behind, you know, all these nuances that we're talking about. You know, now we have a handoff to these guys to bring this authentic uh, emotional tracking to the film where it's, it was kind of the first time in my career I've witnessed a sound crew kind of like compose, I would call it composing, you know, with effects and, and you know, nuances to, to, to carry you through, you know, scenes like that. So I, I think that's completely unique. In a way, the non-use of score sort of highlights the sound mix in a major way in those moments. When we do hear music, obviously it's Lenny and we're, we're telling Lenny's story. And it, I, I think it, it, it is a character in the movie. This goes back at least four years sort of making choices and going through the archives and things. It was interesting because we wanted to stay true to Bernstein fans and, and people that know 
the repertoire. So we didn't want to like overcut some of these known pieces. So it, it really became like a massive global thought process with uh, Brad Lee and, and Michelle, our editor, like to try and make the film play um, without just destroying those pieces of music. Like even on the waterfront, which is opens a film that's it's very percussive. I mean, it's not like we just started started looping it and you know doing all kinds of of crazy things to the music. We really try to stay true to it. I think the big thing was going back once we had sort of tempted the movie with old pieces of Bernstein was going in to re-record it and, and knowing that we now had picture cuts sort of mapped out to some of these historical pieces of music. And, you know, Lenny historically didn't use clicks. We didn't want to really record with clicks, so we had to kind of go through the scoring at air to try and re-record some of these pieces, knowing that we wanted them immersive and atmos, but also staying true to the music. That's quite a tightrope walk you had to balance yourself on there. It was very impressive. Uh, Something you just brought up, Jason, is the idea that there's long stretches of this movie without any score or music in this case. And as you mentioned, the sound effects kind of had to fill that void. Uh, Dean, I wonder if you could talk about maybe the presence of wind in this film, because winds and birds and crickets end up kind of playing a major role in how this soundtrack makes the viewer feel. There's one scene in particular where uh, Leonard Bernstein and his daughter are in a kind of a field having a really important talk with no score, and the winds really carry us through that scene. Dean could talk about all that work with the winds and birds and cicadas and such. It's all rhythm. It's all about how the emotion of the scene is making us feel how I play things. And then wind was a big motif in this movie. And so at certain times we play up the winds a little bit. But that wind is different from the other winds because it's kind of a gentle type of wind with the leaves blowing and grass kind of sound moving. But it has to support the lie, if you will. Mm-hmm. And uh, I love that scene. It's a great emotional scene, but it also gave us the latitude to be the score, if you will, and and, and um, play the emotions. A lot of part of this movie, I think music and sound effects really play well together because of when the music does come in, it's a, it's a character, it's a statement, and we get to get out of the way, but then come back in to support when the music leaves. It just was a great experience on this movie, to, an emotional movie for us. When we try to try to like look at the entire movie as sort of a piece of music, you know, that had a lot to do with how we dealt with transitions and the ups and downs and the flow, you know, of, of everything in the movie. I really uh, like imagining in my head during that scene... Uh, while you're trying to make everything perfect, that there's one cricket that you want to get rid of, and which damn track is it on? <laughs> Digging through, where's that cricket? <laughs> yeah, it's a, a grip department breaking down a frame, you know, on the other side of the building, you know, dropping it, <laughs> dropping a hammer. <laughs> but it's funny, it's funny you say that because we definitely had, you know, not just in that scene, but in every scene, we had this level of focus as we're watching down the movie with Bradley you know okay wait that bird tweet right there uh, I'm not sure that's the right spot can we move that two feet later you know <laughs> and okay good okay now you know this could go up and down but I mean it's 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 uh, you know sort of dialed in at that level where uh, you know he sits there with us and 
there's nothing we didn't go over and look at multiple times. Thank you very much for talking to me today. This film, I really enjoyed it. It felt uh, like a breath of fresh air. It's different than all the other movies out there right now. So uh, I really appreciate all the work you did on it. And I have a bunch more questions, but we're out of time. So thank you very much. And uh, hopefully we get to talk to you all again one day soon. Thank you. Thanks. For Thanks. Okay, before we go, I wanted to remind you all to mark your calendars for February 29th, Leap Day. If you will be in the Los Angeles area, Tonebenders is having a sound design meetup at the Thirsty Merchant in Studio City. This event is being co-hosted by Game Audio LA, and it would be great to see you all there. Full details can be found at tonebenderspodcast.com and click on the link at the top for sound design meetups. Okay, come back next week as we have a talk with the sound team behind Alan Wake 2. My name is Tim Muirhead. Thanks for listening to Tonebenders. Talk to you soon. Tonebenders is produced by Timothy Muirhead, Renee Coronado, and Teresa Morrow. Theme music is by Mark Strait. Send your emails to info at tonebenderspodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter via at the Tonebenders and join Tonebenders Podcast on Facebook. Support this podcast. You can use our links when you shop with Amazon or B&H, or leave us a tip. Just go to tonebenderspodcast.com and click the support button. Thanks for listening. Are you looking for more audio-related podcasts to listen to? Tonebenders is part of the Audio Podcast Alliance, featuring a hand-picked selection of the very best podcasts about sound. Be sure to hear the latest episodes from our friends in the community at audiopodcast.org.